I'm just going to start talking and uh, we'll just start going. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, great. Well, good, good to have you, have you guys here again. Um, at different ways, I'll just kind of show you cool stuff because it's cool to see cool stuff. Um, so you may or may not know this, but uh, Isaiah was uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that uh, was first found when they were discovered in 1948. And it, along with uh, the Book of Psalms, were the only two biblical scrolls found there in complete, uh, complete shape, like beginning to end. Did, have you guys seen the Isaiah Scroll or ever heard, seen pictures of this or whatever? Yeah, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were discovered in 1948 in uh, some caves, uh, in some cliffs off of, uh, off, you know, about a mile inland from the Dead Sea. And uh, there's a community of almost, you would almost call them monks, though this is all pre-Christian. So this is where Jewish, it was a Jewish, almost but like monastic community uh, that uh, withdrew from Jerusalem. This is all pre-Christian. And they thought the temple was bunk and that all corrupted and so on. So it's a bunch of very extreme, uh, extremely devoted Jewish people. They withdrew to the desert and made a little desert community. And luckily for us, they took their Bibles with them, uh, along with a bunch of their other their own community writings and so on. And the Bibles they took with them were not like ours at all. Uh, this didn't exist yet. Uh, this form of a book is all of a post-Christian phenomenon, from about 400 A.D. Uh, but scrolls, everything the Bible consisted of separate scrolls. So they just, uh, about in the last year, put a digitized, fully digitized version of the scroll online. If you just Google um, uh, the Isaiah scroll online. And so here's the whole thing at the bottom here. I don't know if you can see that. And then you can just put the cursor over any part of it. And then this is, it gets even better. And then you can zoom in on any part. Um, Oh, the connection's kind of slow. Oh, what's this doing up here? Oh, it's the time. Oh, stop that. That's going to take up bandwidth. Stop. Stop. Okay. Uh, why isn't this happening? Hmm. It's totally slow. Oh, what a bummer. Oh, I was going to... Yeah. Come on. Be, be good. Come on. Come up here. <laughs> it's like playing tag. Come here, come here. Oh, oh, what a bummer. Well, there you go. Oh, I wanted to zoom it right in because you can see, I mean, you can see everything when you zoom in. Come on now. It's, it says I have a full signal, right? Did this ever stop? You don't think it's taking up bandwidth or anything? Okay. Well, then what's the deal? You think so? It's just a bad connection? Can you just like click on one of the verses instead of Well Yeah, all it does is isolate and then it just gives you the English translation of that section. Um, well anyhow, so how oh, it's so awesome because you can zoom in. Let me show you a section. This is what's really great. So so, so this, this Isaiah scroll has been subject to a lot of study for lots of different reasons. Um, but through this, we learned, through this we learned a ton about how biblical scrolls were made. 
and pass down and so on. And so I was going to zoom it in more to show you. Can you see some funny stuff going on right here? See how all that's super nice, neat lines, but then all of a sudden that's all squished together? Or do you see some stuff like running over the line here, like down margins, or written in between the lines right here? So, was, so these are scribal errors and corrections. So by, and you can see, you know, it takes a trained eye and so on, but you can see that it's a little bit different handwriting, some of this stuff in between. And so what happened is scribe A came along, made a copy, and he's looking at whatever lay before him. He brings it out. And then, you know, he makes mistakes. He's a human. And if you've ever tried looking at something and hand, hand copying like that, you'll be, you'll be amazed at the mistakes that you make. So scribe B comes along, like it's like a checker, like a corrector. And so uh, he comes along and he says, oh, like this guy totally skipped a line, which you can see would very easily happen. Your eyes are up here, you go to write it down, and then you look up and oops, like you skip two lines instead of one, you know? This stuff would totally happen. And so this guy comes along, and he just fills in the gap. <laughs> he just totally writes in between. Oh, it didn't have enough room, so he spills over onto the, onto the margin here. The next person who's going to use this scroll as the example copy then will make, fit it back in again and make it all look pristine and so on. Um, so anyhow, this is, uh, the Isaiah scroll is totally fascinating. Oh, and you want to know something interesting. Uh, this is... Uh, the end of the end of the scroll here. Um, uh, go to the end of the book of Isaiah with me. <clears throat> so you remember how Isaiah one ended? Um, that there would be all these sacred, idolatrous places of worship that we're, they're going to be ashamed of. Remember, the strong man is going to be like what? Is this metaphor? Yeah, like the little fuzz that you use to start the fire. His work will be like kindling. They will be burned and, and burned up with unquenchable fire. That's what, how the last sentence of chapter 1. Unquenchable fire burned up, the wicked. But the repentant are going to be restored and redeemed. So, uh, verse 22 of this, the last paragraph of the book here. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord... So will your name and your descendants endure. Your descendants. Anybody have a different translation there? Seed. seed. This is the seed. There's going to be a seed who will endure in the new heavens and the new earth. The holy seed. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all my, mankind will come and bow down before me. So the new creation is depicted as this ongoing cycle of redeemed temple worship uh, here new moons remember what did God say in chapter 1 how does he feel about the new moons in Israel he hates them not because he hates the festivals he hates the hypocrisy that they're doing it uh, while letting the, the homeless and the, and the widow and the fatherless fall through the cracks but this, he reinstates them so this is a vision of the, the new community uh, says the Lord and they will go out so this is happy good news verses 22 and 23 happy good news they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Oh. <laughs> right? So, whoa. 
That's harsh, yeah? That's really harsh. So, you know, did anyone see a couple of Jesus' favorite phrases here to describe health? Yeah, he just, he lifted them right out of Isaiah. The worm not dying, unquenchable fire, and so on. He just, he pulled this right out of Isaiah. So what, what's happened in the Isaiah scroll, um, they actually, this is actually incorrect how they've done it. Because the Isaiah scroll, uh, the scribe didn't want the last sentence to be about hell. What he's done, he's taken verse 24 and put it in it before verses 22 and 23 in the scroll. So that it, so the last paragraph of Isaiah is bad news, then good news. <laughs> Whereas what Isaiah originally wrote was actually good news and then bad news, if that makes any sense. So the Isaiah scroll just is, has a, just a treasure trove of fascinating information about the preservation of the biblical text, how it was passed on, but then how also... From, from time to time, scribes would uh, introduce small changes like that, even switching the order. Um, now, the reason why we can spot the change is because we have a bunch of other manuscripts that preserve the original, the original order. Um, but anyhow, it was just fascinating. So the Isaiah scroll, it's great. You can go look at, look at it online. One thing I'll also point out, can you tell by looking at it what the material is that it's made out of? Parchment, Parchment which is made up of so animal skin, animal skin, totally. So papyrus is like a grass. Uh, essentially, it's made into paper, what we might recognize as paper. And that became really, that was common. Uh, but uh, in Israel, papyrus or straight up cowhide <laughs> or sheep hide. So this is animal skin because that stuff's durable. And so you can see here to get, can you see the little uh, marks of the sewing where they sewed together, the little holes right there? So these are two strips of hide that have been cut and then uh, shaped together. Right. Isn't this awesome? Yeah, the yeah, Isaiah scroll, totally. So this is pre, uh, it's pre-Christian. Uh, the scroll dates to about 100, 150 B.C. Um, so anyway, awesome. So I know Jesus was handed something like this in the synagogue that we read about in Luke 4. And he would have found Isaiah 61 and gone for it. Anyway, he has S scroll. Thoughts? Questions? Where, where is it kept now? Mm-hmm. It's kept in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's called, it's in Jerusalem right by the capital and like their uh, parliament. And they made a building shaped like one of the jars that the scrolls were found in, in the caves, a huge building. And then that's where the scrolls are on display. But there's been some touring the U.S. here. Did anybody, has anybody gone to one of those? I think, where where did you go see it? Seattle. Seattle. Was it in Seattle? Yeah. When I was in Madison, uh, it was in Milwaukee. Um, so it was about an hour and a half away. It's great. It's awesome. When was it found? 1948. And the story is fascinating. So we should do, I have a four-hour thing on like the making of the Bible that we should do sometime too, don't you think? Yeah, so, and it's a fascinating story. Because um, uh, it's about, there's two, they, the scrolls just appeared on the black market. An ad in the New York Times saying, ancient biblical scrolls found would be ideal gift for someone's religious library. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then just an address. That's it. And, uh, and this whole story is scandalous about how they were found and who exactly found them, and then who was selling them, trying to get money. Anyway, it's totally... And so it started all these conspiracy theories about aliens and weird, weird stuff. I'm totally, I'm totally serious, but uh, 
it was just all because it was shrouded in, in mystery. Yeah. Did you see them in Israel? Mm-hmm. Do they have the book of Isaiah at the museums of Israel there? They have a copy wrapped around a center column. So you, you can walk around a big center column and look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's at the center, the very center of the whole museum is the Isaiah scroll wrapped around in glass. You can walk around and look at the look at the whole thing. Yeah. Any idea when it was written? Well, so the the scroll itself dates by handwriting and so on to about 150 BC. Um, but yeah, so there you go. That's when the scroll itself is dated to. So, but what's get interesting was he was obviously looking at something that he copied from. You know that predates that even, and so on and so on, all the way back to to Isaiah. So uh, yeah, so we'll talk more about this stuff. I'll I'll show some other. I have some other ancient manuscripts. I actually have the whole of uh, the Isaiah scroll in in black and white photo up here. If you want to come look at it, ever it's kind of fun to look at. Uh, so, but I'll talk about that stuff a little a little later. Okay, so we are uh, diving in. So we did Isaiah chapter one. And uh, basically, you get all the main uh, all the main themes right there. Just as let me draw attention to the handout here. Um, I'm notorious for giving handouts and then not ever referring to them, and just <laughs> assume that you'll go read it. And I just want to read the Bible with you. So anyhow, so I will I'll try and point some things out on the handout here. Um, so here's how I would summarize the plot line of Isaiah in light of these passages. And let's say reading just the first chapter here. Here's the basic storyline, the plot line of Isaiah. Uh, God's covenant plan is to bring blessing and salvations to all nations through Abraham, Genesis 12, through Israel, Exodus 19, and through the, the seed, the Messiah, kind of the king coming from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. What are the three passages again? You should memorize these passages. Right? Genesis 12, Genesis 19, 2 Samuel 7. You get these in the back of your head, you just, the New Testament just starts to make a lot more sense. <laughs> um, so that's the plan. What's the problem? You read Isaiah chapter 1. What's the problem? Israel has rebelled. As we get to chapters 13 to 23, we'll also see the nations have also uh, rebelled and just are broken and screwed up as uh, Israel is. So here's the key question that drives the book of Isaiah. Is how is God going to fulfill these promises to Abraham, Israel, to David in the face of Israel's rebellion and the nation's rebellion? That's the driving, driving question. Um, and so Isaiah began to answer that, right? What was, let's just kind of recap from Isaiah 1. How is God going to do it? From Isaiah 1, how's he going to accomplish his promises and his purposes? So, the hammers, the hammer's coming, and it's coming down hard. Uh, but again, just because God has a chip out on his shoulder, he, you know, his ultimate purpose is much greater. What else did Isaiah say? What's on the other side of judgment? So it's a purification. It's the judgment is, it has a purifying purpose. Who comes out the other side? The repentant, um, those who rebel, 
and who continue in idolatry, unquenchable fire of judgment. Right? And it's what the last chapter, last chapter says too. Um, so that's how it's going to work. So how is Israel going to be restored? And could it be the case uh, that the people will suffer, but is there someone else who's going to have to suffer as well? And these are the questions that, uh, that begin to raise. So uh, let's see. I, the big picture of the book of Isaiah, um, I just wanted to read chapter 1 together, and I should have done this. Hmm. Can you see what I'm discovering about this whiteboard? Here, look at this. <laughs> and you have to go, like, really hard. <laughs> Would someone mind doing this for me right now? I'm sorry. So I can, give it, so I can do this? I'm really sorry. I should have done this before the break. It's going to be, like, wax on, wax off. Time. You could take turns. You can appoint a successor. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll have to make sure to do it. Oh, will that work? Oh, oh look that was a teacher. Oh, you know what you're doing. Okay, um, so here's how we're going to uh, approach the book of Isaiah. The, the section I want us to get an aerial view of right now in this time uh, is chapters 1 through 12 as a whole. So we're not going to read chapters 1 through 12 just like the way we read chapter 1. I'm going to highlight the structure of this section, the main ideas, and we're going to dive into a few passages together. Um, but here's the principle for why. And this is, I want to just talk about what it means to read biblical books, what it means to read biblical prophecy um, in a way that might help you begin to make sense, make sense of it. So, is anybody uh, a fan of M.C. Escher drawings? Anybody? I had, I, my parents had a coffee table. I can't reach that. Go for it. <clears throat> My parents had a coffee table book of M.C. Escher drawings. Um, and one of my favorite ones is called Drawing Hands. Anyone ever seen this before? Yeah, it's one of, one of my it's one of the most uh, well-known ones here. Okay, ooh, bad resolution, but you get the idea. Um, so, and his thing is all about optical illusions and so on. But uh, for one reason or another, this um, has become a helpful image for me in thinking about what it means to read the Bible. So, and, so, and so here's why. So we have one thing. We're reading the Bible, and in theory, we're looking um, to hear somebody communicate with us. So like an author has something the author wants to say to us. And, you know, maybe you might have better luck at that when you're reading Paul, because it's just him talking to the reader, and you feel like it's a little easier to understand what he's saying, even though he's actually himself very difficult to understand, isn't it? So uh, there's just, you're kind of reading along for the words. But uh, parallel to that is not just the words that you're reading, but the large-scale architecture of the book, of the book that's sitting in front of you. Um, and so uh, kind of the way I put this together is that the author's meaning, if like the author's meaning is the top hand, then the structure and the architecture of the book is like the bottom hand. And to really get the big picture of what's happening, it especially is helpful in biblical poetry, is not just to read the words, but to sit back and reflect on how the book is put together. And we were kind of doing that when I was trying to show the structure of units in chapter 1. So this, verses 1 through 2, whatever, the verses 2 through 9, the thing that began and ended with the faithful city, and then the faithful city again. So a lot of how these books are put together 
is you think of Isaiah on the street corner on a given day, and he's just going for it, you know? And so, you know, did he speak in beautiful, you know, um, structured poetry or so on? Yeah, perhaps, likely. Well, we don't have that. What we have is uh, the, the writing down of his prophecies and arranged in a particular way. Someone's been at work arranging them. And so reading them is good. That's a good start. But also you often have to step, step back and say, what are the sections and how has this book been, been put together? And so uh, that's kind of the rationale between the rationale for what I'm doing right here, the literary structure of Isaiah. So, for example, look at a, the first sentence of Isaiah. You see a little little heading right there, yeah. And it was like a, literally like a little editorial note here. Now, who's talking to us in the first sentence of the book of Isaiah? So it's an anonymous voice, yeah? So Isaiah starts talking in verse 2. Actually, this is good. Who's talking to us in verse 1? We don't know. I guess the author of the book, right? Who's compiled Isaiah's words. And then we are introduced to the vision about Isaiah. Who's talking to us in verse 2? Presumably Isaiah, right? Because we're just here. This is the vision of Isaiah. And then verse 2, here, O heavens, here, O earth. And then pretty soon... Isaiah stops talking, and then who is speaking? God. Yeah, God. <laughs> so it's, there's like three layers of voices here. Do you see that? And so there's the author, who's compiled the book, and stays anonymous. Then there's Isaiah, who's quoted here, is speaking. And then Isaiah himself often is, large part of what he's saying is just divine speech, quoting, quoting God's speech. So if you begin to pay attention to this kind of stuff, who's talking right now? And how is it divided up? Uh, you begin to be able to divide up the book into sections and units and so on. So uh, there was another one of these. You saw it at the beginning of chapter 2. Yeah? Hmm? Uh, the beginning of chapter 2 began with uh, a little heading. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then we go and search for uh, new ones of these. And uh, they just kind of... They don't come. We don't actually get a new heading like this until chapter 13. Why don't you go just to the beginning of chapter 13 with me? <clears throat> and lo and behold, what do we have at the beginning of chapter 13? Yeah, another, an oracle concerning Babylon uh, that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. So what this means is that chapters 1 through 12 have been organized as kind of... Chapter 1 was like an intro, and then chapters even 2 through 12 have been organized as a meaningful collection that you're meant to read and reread and meditate on in its own, in its own right. Does that make sense? So uh, it, just, it pays to pay attention to this stuff because somebody's compiled one, chapters 1 through 12 and then kind of set off chapter 1 by its own heading, and then two, chapters 2 through 12 as a unit that you're just supposed to read through as a kind of a coherent whole. And then there's subunits within subunits and so on. And people write whole books on how just to divide up the literary sections of the book of Isaiah. It's a boring book to read, but uh, it's interesting because somebody has put, uh, put this book together. So um, just... As a way of, uh, of thinking about this, let me, let me just, uh, as an approach, a way to think about prophetic books. So I'm going to say, uh, this is Isaiah here. 
on the street corner. Uh, he should have a beard. Okay, he's a biblical character. So he's out there, uh, you know, uh, yelling at the people, <laughs> right? And uh, at some point further on, either uh, Isaiah, we'll give him another beard, um, or uh, somebody, as we're going to find out in chapter 8, Isaiah had a group of followers. Uh, he actually calls them disciples, we find in chapter 8. And at some point, uh, these words, we'd say these are Isaiah's words, they get committed to writing. He talks about writing down his prophecies and his words here in chapter 8. And so at some point, they get collected into some form of writing. <clears throat> and then at some other point, which we don't ever hear about, uh, they get turned into a book or into a, a collection of, of books. And so a lot of this, again, this is somebody has sat down and arranged the book of Isaiah like this uh, intentionally. There's intelligent life in the arrangement of, uh, of the books. Um, but also this helps us kind of explain this jolting kind of nature of the book. Like one moment it was like good news and then bad news. and You know what I'm saying? That, that whole feel in chapter one. Um, and so here's kind of the basic breakdown of, uh, of the book, then, of how it's been, been uh, arranged. And then I'll give you an analogy that I think, for me, helped help bring it all together. So chapters 1 through 12 is one whole section, and it's all set right in that same time period, uh, this time period right here, of uh, this in-between time. Uh, the northern kingdom is about to uh, uh, come to its end here. Uh, but this destruction hasn't happened yet. So he's right in this, in this zone. And chapters 1 through 12 is all about the interactions Isaiah had uh, on the eve of the northern kingdom's destruction and so on. But then all of a sudden, chapters 13 through 23 uh, begin a whole new section. And it's oracles about all these ancient nations. So if you're still at chapter 13, you look at chapter 13 and it's an oracle about what nation again in 13? Babylon. Look at uh, chapter 15. What's chapter 15 about? Moab. What's chapter 17 about? Damascus. Uh-huh. Chapter 19. Yeah. Uh, chapter 19 It's an oracle concerning Egypt. So again, not looking at the little headings that your Bible translators have put there. This is verse 1, the headings that the author of the book of Isaiah has put there for you. So someone has collected uh, now a whole bunch of oracles that God uh, speaks to the nations, all the nations surrounding Israel. So this kind of, again, what was chapter 1 and 2 about? God focuses on Israel. Chapter 2, God focuses on the nations. Chapters 2 through 12, all about Israel. Chapters 13 through 27 is all oracles against all the nations and so on. So this is very convenient. Someone's been intentional and they're trying to help you. <laughs> Even though you don't feel helped <laughs> when you read the book of Isaiah, you just feel like a deer in the headlights. But someone actually is trying to help us when we pay attention. And so again, the drawing hands, the meaning of the book is going to come out of paying attention to the structure someone's put before us. Uh, chapters 28 through 35 uh, is another round of poetry um, that fits us into uh, this same, the same time period, right, right in here. 
Um, then all of a sudden, chapters, uh, sorry, 36 through 39. I'm going way back and forth here. Chapters 36, 36 through 39 are uh, narratives. They're not poetry at all. And it's not Isaiah talking at all. It's actually a whole bunch of narratives where Isaiah is a character in the story. And it's actually a, a bunch of narratives about... Um, there were some narratives up here about Isaiah interacting with Ahaz. Now a bunch of narratives with poetry inserted is about another king. And this is about a story about when the king of Assyria came knocking on Jerusalem's door. And uh, miraculously, God delivers the city of Jerusalem. And what comes after that are three big sections of uh, poetry, 40 to 48, 49 to 55, uh, 56 through 50, uh, 66. Uh, and again, we'll dive in there, and the literature itself is kind of divided up into these sections. So once, once you kind of get the basic idea here, all of a sudden the 66 chapters become a little more coherent. Someone has already sat down and organized the book for you. So you're not actually hearing Isaiah on the street corner. Um, what you're doing is you're listening to a collection of his prophecies that have been arranged by, first probably by himself, and then arranged by his disciples, and then at some point turned into a whole, a whole book. Um, so here's kind of a, a, at least a, a metaphor or an analogy that I've found uh, really helpful. M plus is just kind of interesting. Um, has anyone, you probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Has anyone heard of the Cairo Geniza Scrolls before? A couple of you, one of you. Um, so this was actually, the, this was the Dead Sea Scrolls find of the previous generation. So this was in, uh, uh, in the early uh, 1900s. There was a, a synagogue in Egypt, a Jewish synagogue in Egypt, that was undergoing construction and punch a hole in the wall, and lo and behold, what do they find? Just loads of ancient biblical manuscripts. And uh, most of them were like receipts. Oh, excuse me, ancient biblical manuscripts and other scrolls and other writings. Most of them were boring. They were like receipts for like buying land and stuff like that. But then there were some biblical, biblical manuscripts in there. And uh, there's a famous photo of uh, the first scholar who got to crawl. Once they realized they punched through, they uh, started uh, contacting... Uh, people to come and visit, and uh, Solomon Schechter was the first scholar to step in uh, to see, find a good resolution photo, to step into the place. And so he, over a, what? Well, someone explain this to me. I don't know. I act like I know what I'm doing with my computer. But uh, So Sol this guy named Solomon Schechter, he was uh, a Jewish scholar at Cambridge, in 1898, uh, he emptied this uh, storage chamber, and here are all the contents. <laughs> and he dedicated the rest of his career to sorting it all out. And it was really crazy because, you know, it's all in scraps. And so a piece um, from, you know, this manuscript over here might actually have been torn off and match a piece from this manuscript over here. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so he and a team, eventually, because he couldn't do it, uh, assembled it all, and then they published it all in volumes and so on. So uh, here, this is why I'm telling you this story. In my mind, uh, this is a bit like I think of something of the process of how the book of Isaiah was put together. <laughs> in terms of he had a, life, uh, a whole career of him, Isaiah on the street corner, and who knows, well, he's, he's writing down stuff that he preached that day, 
His disciples are writing down what he preached that day. Uh, but at some point, it's a massive material. <laughs> it's a lot of material. And so somebody sat down at some point and said, you know what? Uh, chapter one is going to be a little amalgam with this set of themes right here. Chapters two, three, and four, uh, they're pulled together from maybe he said this one on December, he did this one in April, but I'm going to pull it together into a little unity here. And so it's really, it's like a quilt or something like it's a, it's a patchwork that's been arranged. And this is, this is part of the reason why you're reading, and it just seems so jarring. Like, oh, there's a little thing about this, and then a thing about this, and so on. Um, and this is why um, Luther, Luther has a famous quote about reading the prophets. I'm kind of, is this okay? I'm kind of everywhere right now. Is that okay right now? Okay, sorry, this is how my brain works sometimes. Uh, Luther has a famous quote. Um, on reading the prophets, it's really funny. Uh, sorry, one second. I had it up earlier. I'll just open it here. Here we go. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> here it is right here. The prophets, they, the pro- prophets, they have a queer way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. <laughs> and you think, yeah, that's about what it's like to read the book of Isaiah. Um, and essentially what, what's happening here, he's putting his thumb on the process of how the book was put together. But once uh, we, we get an insight into the process of how the book was arranged and put together, you can kind of begin to see uh, that there's a number of stages in how the book was formed, and it can help, at least help in reading, reading the book a little bit, at least I think. So, how are you guys doing? Yeah. Is there any thought that it's put together chronologically or topically? Hmm. Uh, yeah, actually, topically would be uh, would be a great way of putting it. And so there is progression. So, for example, as we're going to see, um, there's a key thing here that happens uh, at this point here: the shift between thirty-nine to forty. So we have Isaiah talking about the nations of his day, about Israel of his day, but something shifts between chapter 39 and 40. And all of a sudden in chapter 40, uh, we, the perspective of the speaker is of, no longer of Isaiah sitting here in Jerusalem during this period. Uh, in this section, the speaker is all of a sudden assuming that exile has taken place and is on the other side of exile. So we'll get this when we get to Isaiah 40 and following, on, we'll get there on the, like the third the third. Wednesday. And so this has caused a big set of questions here about who's talking to us in Isaiah chapter 40, because this person just is saying exile is over. And unless Isaiah was like 250 years old, you know, it's, it's not him. And so uh, it's actually when we get to those sections that we'll talk more about the authorship of the book of Isaiah. But uh, so there is a progression in the book um, that moves from, at least topically, we're talking about how Israel is going to be judged and redeemed, how the nations are going to be judged and redeemed. And then we're back to how Israel is going to be judged and redeemed. And then we're back to an instance where Israel was redeemed from their enemies, but then they're going to be judged again by, they're saved from Assyria, but then judged by Babylon and so on. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, again, like that symphony and the way the book's arranged is exploring the themes, but always developing them a little more, a little more, a little more. 
So it's just the pre reading prophetic books. All I'm trying to do right now is to help you understand why you have such a hard time reading Isaiah. Because <laughs> it's hard, if you've ever tried, it's really hard to read. And so it's put together in a way different than how we would write and put together books these days, one. Um, but, but two, also the, the way the themes are developed, it's like reading a, it's reading a collection of poetry. That's essentially what we're reading. Reading a collection of poetry that's been arranged topically with the, with the flow. So if you're not down for reading poetry, I don't know what to tell you. you know? <laughs> you're just going to have to figure out a way to do it if you want to read the book of Isaiah. I don't know. But uh, for me, this became helpful, at least, in explaining that there's a method to the madness as I wade into the book of Isaiah. Yeah, so there you go. So part of reading Isaiah, you're not always looking for a linear development of thought. You're more, it's like listening to a symphony, and you just got to let each little section make an impression on you. Let each little, uh, oops. So again, it's kind of taking in a little piece, and you can see, oh, here's a little piece right here. And just kind of take that for what it is and let that section, maybe chapter or part of a chapter, and then let the next one come. And part of it is in relating them and seeing what are the common themes and the common language and so on, like we were doing as we were reading, as we were reading chapter one. So let's, let me show you another example. Let's keep diving into uh, uh, chapters one through 12 here. And so um, someone pointed out that I gave you these nice, here's a little breakdown of the little... I would call these little individual poems or sections in Isaiah chapter 1. And someone asked, oh, are you, you going to summarize those into a nice little sentence for each one of them? And I thought, oh yeah, I forgot to do that when we were reading through uh, chapter, chapter 1. So, um, but I kind of don't want to do it for you because I kind of want you to do it yourself as you read through the book of Isaiah. What do you think we should do? Homework. Homework. Yeah, it's kind of like homework. Are you going to read the book of Isaiah this month? If you're going to be here, you've got to read the book of Isaiah. Well, there you go. Well, you're going to read it then. So I would encourage you to do your little summary, summary sentences. Um, okay, so what we're going to do is, uh, during the time we have left, even within chapters uh, 1 through 12, there's little mini miniature structures where the author of Isaiah has been arranging the bits of poetry into little meaningful bits here. Um, and so we're going to uh, focus on chapters 2 through 4 for a little bit. We're going to see the, the theme played out. You guys ready to dive in? Okay. So chapter 2 begin, and we had this little section here of 2, 1 through 5 that we read together. And remember, this was, was, this was bright, happy days ahead, yeah? Right? So the nations are going to gather around an exalted Zion, and um, I have some little notes, uh, some little notes here in your notes um, about some of the key words here. But uh, so this is pitched forward at the, in some future day, uh, which chapter 1 helped us see that there's going to be judgment, but then restoration. So on the other side of judgment, there's going to be a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, all nations coming, uh, and, and the restoration. Um, chapter 2, verses 6. We'll just kind of dive, we'll dive in here to keep on reading. This is such a, such a fascinating uh, passage here. 2, verse 6. You guys ready? Here we go. <clears throat> you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. They clasp hands with pagans. So what is this, what of chapter one is ringing in our minds here? 
Yeah, idolatry. Yeah, so the practice of worshiping different gods, and so we're spelling this out a little more. They full-on adopted the gods and the practices of worshiping as the Philistines, the nations around them, and so on. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have men, what their fingers have made. And so, men will be brought low, and the people humbled. But do not forgive them. How do you feel about that? <laughs> so, does anyone have a different translation there? The Lord cannot ignore their sins. The Lord cannot ignore their sins. Plus, is that what translation you have there? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. So living, yeah, as like uh, kind of paraphrasing here. So the prophet, he, he names all the sins of the people, and then he just gives his two cents. Yeah, there's, they've reached the point of no return. Don't forgive them. They need to head straight into judgment. So this is a good example. So the, the, it's an accusation against the people and all the things they've done wrong. And then here's another little bit of poetry here. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground. From the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled. The pride of men will be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So, what is, at least what are some of the images here that sticking out, they're sticking out to you? Why would you go into the rocks? Crawl under a rock? Totally, to escape. Does this ring any bells? You've read the book of Revelation. Yeah, totally. So, again, you're going you're gonna to find this. The book of Revelation, he clearly had some kind of crazy experience <laughs> where he saw a lot of crazy stuff. But about every other image or sentence in the book of Revelation has been pretty much just lifted uh, from the prophets. Um, and it's really, it's sort of like a, an amalgamation of meditations on the images of judgment and salvation in the prophetic literature. So in the Revelation of John, his image of God coming in judgment in the judgment chapters uh, envisions people scurrying away into caves and so on to escape. And he's, he's readapted that whole idea from Isaiah chapter 2 here. So we're hiding from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his uh, majesty. The eyes, so we have arrogant, pride people, and what's going to happen to them? Humbled and brought low, but then the Lord will be Exalted. So there's a spatial imagery here. So this is a key uh, theme for Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah, God is depicted as the exalted high one. And the, the basic sin in the book of Isaiah is idolatry that leads people to exalt themselves above God. It's a key, key theme. So verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all of the proud and the lofty and for all that's exalted, and they will all be humbled and brought low. Even the trees. It's like, what the trees ever do? <laughs> so, for the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, the oaks of Bashan, the towering mountains, the high hills, every lofty tower, every fortified wall, every trading ship, every stately vessel. So what's the idea here? So he's, he's getting carried away in his poetry, almost, isn't he? Every high thing you can possibly imagine that would attempt to even be higher than the status and power of the Creator God will be humbled and, and will be brought low. The arrogance of man will be brought low. The pride of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols 
will totally disappear. Okay, so there's a day coming, yeah? That's the big theme here. There's a day coming. When's that day? Mm. <laughs> so remember Isaiah 1 talked about a time coming that was going to be judgment, right? And purifying. And so Isaiah 2 is almost like a whole playing out of what that day will be like. The day of God's judgment to humble the arrogant and the proud. So chapter 2 has been a collection of uh, poetry about, about the day. Uh, chapter 3 is uh, kind of plays out uh, the specific imagery of how it's going to affect Jerusalem. There's going to be like a siege on the city. Someone's going to come besiege it, and they're not going to have any food or any water. It's going to be horrible, horrible times. So we have here in the architecture of chapters 2 through 4, we have a bright spot, all the nations gathered here, and then we just dive into these images of judgment and the day of Yahweh and proud being humbled and brought low and the besiege, besieging of Jerusalem and so on. Um, go to chapter 4 with me. And it all comes around, it all comes around again. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, what day is that? So yeah, so in the time of the judgment, something's going to happen on the other side of the judgment. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Okay, so let's pause right there. So again, we are slow down here. Um, the branch of the Lord. What's that? So does anyone have, is the B capitalized in any of your translations? So yeah, and some it is. So that's interesting. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of whom? Not just Israel. The survivors here. Or does anyone have the, the, like the escaped remnant? Any, any other translations? The survivors or what else? Yeah, those who have escaped. So, okay, think about chapter 1 here. Oh, who's going to escape? <laughs> who's going to survive the other side of judgment here? The repentant. Yeah, the repentant. So, again, this all just assumes that you've been paying attention <laughs> to what's coming before. So, there's going to be those who have survived the judgment in the land, and the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The branch? What? Who or what is that? So this is obviously a metaphor. So, um, and it's going to be a really significant uh, metaphor. So let me just give you a sneak peek, because you read this and you go, Who's the, who or what is the branch? I don't know. It's a branch of the Lord. Uh, go to chap put, keep your thumb here, but go to chapter 11 here. <clears throat> so this promise of the branch kind of goes through a few cycles of repetition, and it pops out in full blossoming here in chapter 11. And we hear that a shoot will come up from the stump of... Who's Jesse? David's, David's, David's father. I, now, David's been dead for 300 years. <laughs> and Jesse's been dead for 340 years, right? So what is it, what's this mean here? So we're talking about the line of David here. There's going to be a new growth coming out 
from the line of David that's been brought humbled and low and chopped off. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So what is this metaphor getting at here? So uh, this king from the line of David, the the Messiah from the line of David, is going to grow like a seed, like a shoot, like a branch is going to come out here. So what's great is that in chapter 4, you're just left, what's, who's, what is the branch? I don't know. You've got to keep reading. <laughs> and you actually don't find out until chapter 11, really, who or what the branch is. So again, this is a good lesson in reading Isaiah. It's a repetition of themes. And sometimes you'll read something and you go, what on earth is that? And half the time, you've just got to keep reading. <laughs> and your question will be answered at some point as you go on reading. Does that make sense? So Isaiah rewards a patient reader. It will frustrate the impatient reader. <laughs> so, sorry. You know, there you go. That's just how it works. Okay, let's keep reading. So, the Messiah, in sometime around or after the judgment, the Messiah shows up, and the repentant who have survived the judgment will be there. Verse 3. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, they will be called holy. So, if you think about Israel as they were described in chapter 1, could they have possibly been called holy? So, somehow, this group is going to undergo a transformation from sinful, corrupt, messed up, to being pronounced as holy. And who pronounces things as holy? God, God can, and priests can, too, on behalf of God. So, let's keep reading. Uh, they'll be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. And here that's a little reference back up to uh, the poem in chapter 3. Where the women of Zion who are super rich and they've been neglecting the poor because all they care about is their jewelry. <laughs> and uh, actually if you look at chapter 3, verses 23, 24, 25. Uh, oh, excuse me, and also... Uh, verses 18, 19, 20. What do you see in chapter 3, 18, 19, 20? It's just a list of jewelry. It's about 15 different Hebrew words for earrings and necklaces. (laughs) I had to memorize these when I was taking Isaiah class. It was horrible. Because this is the only time they appear ever in the, in the Hebrew language. So anyway, so, but it's so, so he, again, he takes a poem. At some point, Isaiah was standing on the street corner railing against the rich, wealthy women of Jerusalem. And so the author of the book has put that poem in here. And then as uh, he puts in a poem about the restoration, he weaves it together so that even these women who in chapter 3 thought, there's no hope for these women, like there's no way. No, he will even redeem and wash away the filth of the women of Jerusalem here. Again, so we're paying attention to the architecture of how it's been put together here. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Where else did we hear about cleansing? The cleansing of Israel. From chapter 1. Yep. Yep. And he'll cleanse Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Does that sound like good news to you? (laughs) so it's good because it's going to result in cleansing but it's going to be through judgment and through uh, a spirit of fire does that ring any bells by the way spirit of fire spirit and fire (laughs) yeah so that's interesting yeah what does john the baptist say 
says, I'm here to baptize you in water, but there's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <laughs> so John's been reading Isaiah. And uh, so he puts together that whatever Jesus is coming to do, it's going to be a part of bringing judgment to the people of Israel. This is such a great passage. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over all who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. And what story is coming into your heads right now? At least, yeah, the story of Israel in the wilderness. He guided them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It'll be like the Exodus all over again. This is sort of like saying it'll be like the first romance. Or it'll be like the first date, you know? And uh, back when, before Israel had completely turned away and back when I was leading you through the wilderness and so on. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Um, this is kind of a strange image here, but... Uh, this word canopy. Has anybody been to a Jewish wedding before? And they stand there in the canopy and so on. They stand there. A little, do you remember what that little thing's called? Yeah, it's called a chupa. A chupa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it's the kh sound. Chupa, chupa. So he's used, look at all the images and the metaphors here. There's going to be over Mount Zion a cloud of smoke, a glow of flaming fire, and over all of that glory, a chuppah. There's going to be a marriage. <laughs> a marriage of Yahweh and Israel again, just like the Exodus days. Um, so a lot of reading Isaiah, it's just unpacking the metaphors and stopping and pondering the images that uh, he's using. And as, they, as, as they're understanding under the canopy... It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day, a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. Now, remember what he said in chapter 2. Where are you supposed to go to escape the terror of God's judgment? <laughs> Seek shelter in the rocks and the hiding place. But now that image gets reversed almost. Yes, there'll be a shelter and a hiding place, all right, but no longer from God's judgment, uh, but rather it's from the rain and the storm as God protects his redeemed people and so on. How are you guys doing? Great. So what's happened here in chapters 2 through 4 is we've had the basic themes. I have way too many things open right now. We have all our basic themes spelled out again. But then uh, what the author's done is he's taken chapter 2, given us a little bright spot about the nations coming to Zion. And then we delve into the dark day of God's judgment. And then he concludes it with this very rich... Uh, metaphor-filled depiction of the redeemed in Jerusalem and the Messiah, and they're purified and called holy and protected by God's care. And there you go. And the poem ends. And then chapter 5, a new, a new one begins. <laughs>